today on the Energy Podcast. Chemicals are essential to everything we do. 96% of products globally have some form of industrial chemical in them. Our society is founded upon using chemicals, but also at the moment, the way we're handling them is not favourable to the environment, and we need to change that. Emissions in the chemical and slightly wider, the chemicals and, and products industry has two components. It's the emissions that we generate when we make the product and the emissions that are generated by using the product. Take a moment to look around you. You may not realise it, but you are surrounded by industrial chemicals. They're contained in so many products we use every single day. From smartphones to clothes to mattresses, they're in our factories, our construction sites, our farms and our hospitals. From pipes to windows and wiring, from fertiliser to machinery components and medical equipment. The chemical sector is the largest industrial energy consumer, according to the International Energy Agency. We're exploring how carbon emissions could be cut from the big industries that produce the building blocks of modern living. We've already discussed the steel and cement industries. And if you've missed those episodes, you can, of course, go back and download them for free. Hello, I'm Julia Streets. And on today's episode of the Energy Podcast, 1.5 and chemicals. Later in the episode, I'll be talking to Robin Moldick, who's the Executive Vice President of Chemicals and Products at Shell. But first, let me introduce Peter Gould. He's a director at Systemic, and it's a company that's focused on transforming systems to help design and build a sustainable economy. And I'm also joined from Tokyo by Naoko Ishii. She is a professor and vice president of the University of Tokyo and a director of the Centre for Global Commons. They both contributed to a report setting out pathways for the chemical industry to enable a sustainable global economy. Peter, thank you for coming to the studio today. How are you? Hello, very well. Good to be here. It's fabulous to have your company. And Naoko, thank you for being with us. Very happy to be with you. It's great to have your company. And to start with, I'm really curious to understand why chemicals are so important. Well, chemicals are essential to everything we do. 96% of products globally have some form of industrial chemical in them. So we've got to live with them. Our society is founded upon using chemicals, but also at the moment, the way we're handling them uh, is not favourable to the planetary boundaries, to the environment, and we need to change that. So for that reason, we need to start thinking about how we can find the benefits from chemicals, but also manage the, the risks better. Nauko, I wonder if I could get your thoughts here, because you were both recently involved in the report called Planet's Positive Chemicals. I'd love to hear from you about why reducing carbon emissions from the chemicals industry is so important. We are now all trying to find a pathway to achieve the net zero by 2050. And there are actually the industries which are considered to be very hard to abate, that you already handle steel and cement. Now we need to handle the chemical industry, which is one of those hard to abate sector. And why it's hard to abate? Because that the chemical is everywhere, it's ubiquitous. And the, most of the chemical uh, the products are also sitting at the beginning of the uh, value chain, not the end of the pipeline. So in order to decarbonize the entire economic sector, we need to really find a way to how to decarbonize the chemical sector. 
And when we think about the dynamics of change, I'm really curious to hear from you about um, some of the solutions that either are available now or that you see need to be developed in order to drive the pace and also to be able to drive change at scale. Really, to change the system, we need to do things on demand side and on supply side. So a single side solution where we just do supply side chemicals, where we grow the system without any control, is not going to work because the system will get so big that it'll be very hard to apply all the technologies, very expensive as well, to try and get it to net zero. So firstly, we need to think about demand side reduction. What does that mean? That really means circularity. When we think about circularity, there's four really big levers. One is eliminating unnecessary chemicals. Then there's reusing chemicals. Then we can substitute chemicals for other chemicals that might be less sort of environmentally harmful. And then finally, we can do recycling, typically mechanical or chemical recycling. So those are the four big levers that we can use on the demand side. And that can mean that despite the very, very significant growth of the system, we actually just bring it down a little bit in size. It's still going to grow, but we can bring it down a little bit in size to something that we can manage. Then having done that, on the supply side, there's really three solutions. The first one is that we need to switch the feedstock source. At the moment, we're very dependent on fossil for energy and to make the actual chemical itself. But then also you need to change your energy source so you can power the production processes through renewable energy instead of through what is currently fossil. And then finally, you can capture fugitive emissions along the value chain. So you can use carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and utilization. So those three supply side interventions can then help bring the system down to net zero. When we think about upgrading existing facilities that are out there, and I've heard that some reports are quoting investment to the tune of about $3 trillion dollars. I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, where does this money come from? Where should the investment be focused? And uh, does it also depend upon where in the world you are, whether you have the investment and the potential to benefit? This three trillion US dollars only actually refers to a needed uh, capital expenditure to upgrade that the facility and actually the entire resources which may be needed to decarbonize chemical industry may be much more throughout the value chain that maybe raw materials may become uh, expensive and maybe at the beginning that the energy source become expensive. We really don't put a price on carbon. Under the new economic and financial system, we have to find a way to put a price on carbon. An entire value chain will be operated under the new system. So the combination of public policy that how to help those carbon tax and how to help mobilize the both public investment and private investment and how the consumers and also investors can deploy their resources along that value chain. So we need a very comprehensive thinking of how this new a challenge be, be financed. So it's not just on the three trillion capital expenditure money, it's actually the entire economic and financial system to be transformed. So the answer is much more complex. It's not necessarily that simple. And Peter, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think absolutely, Noko. But one thing I would add is that three trillion is a scary number, right? But actually, one trillion of that we'd be spending anyway. So actually, the incremental amount is another 
2 trillion. That's still a big number. So 60 to 70 billion a year for the next 30 years. But let's also remember that the chemical system is going to really enable a lot of other sectors to get to net zero. So namely, shipping would be a very, very key one by providing ammonia for ships to run uh, and to be powered by in a net zero way. So there's a lot of growth in there as well that you would want to invest into so that you can scale up these net zero enabling chemicals too. So it shouldn't just be seen as a big cost item. It should be seen as a, a profitable uh, investment. And as you say, the benefits will flow into other areas as well. And one of the things that Nalco talked about there was also about consumer and investor behaviour. And I'd love to get your thoughts, actually, about the dynamics of customers and consumers. You know, they're demanding recycled plastics, but is that sufficient enough drive and demand to accelerate the pace of change? Not really. It's a very important part of the drive, but we need much more significant uh, drive, uh, not only from just the consumers for recycled goods, but uh, actually the purchaser of this green product or low emission product needs to be actually that the board uh, by next customer. If we talk about value chain of the, let's say, a green plastic, we need to capture the demand for those green plastic or the user of those and uh, a commodity. So it can be the automobile maker, the also the other consumer goods, the iPhone or those kind of you know that the goods. I, I think we need to line up those and uh, the potential buyers of green product so that we can actually shift together to create that demand. I agree that initially that may be an expensive one. But we need to uh, find this alliance to create the, the demand. Then that the consumers and investors towards the end of that value chain can actually drive the entire uh, coalition. And, and so there I'm getting a very strong message about the need for, as you said, alliance and collaboration and the value that flows throughout the supply chain, but also in interconnected industries as well. Do we need further impetus to create these collaborations and these alliances or do you think they exist today? There are some collaborations going on but I think there's a need to accelerate and from the standing point of where we are today in the chemical system I think there's need for a new kind of system governance that brings people together uh, to help them agree upon what the task is and how we should transition. What are the pre-competitive rules that we should all try and follow and then also have a very action oriented plan to start the transition soon because there's a lot of infrastructure lock-in that's going to go and happen. A lot of the assets that the industry is going to build now will last for 30 years. So if we don't act this decade, then we'll build the wrong kinds of infrastructure, which will mean that getting to net zero is very hard, or at least the transition will be very disorderly and we'll have things like stranded assets. So that's why there's a need to get going in terms of having the right conversations now. Wonderful. So what we're hearing is is uh, the needs to invest and focus on new ways, as well as to think about the, the road to transition, how to bring others together in an alliance to ensure that we are investing in the right way, but, but very much an attitude of growth, but but having a impetus to do this quickly and get started immediately, which is fantastic. What, I, what I'd love to do is, is ask each of you, as a final question, here we are ahead of COP27 negotiations, and we think about all the different actors involved in the trans- transition and the transformation, as we've discussed. What do you think would make the biggest difference to the chemicals industry in order to achieve the Paris Agreement climate goal ambitions? Nauko, can I come to you first of all? 
I think the renewed commitment to net zero is exceedingly important because of what's happening in the global world. There is a little bit of shaky moment and some of the players have maybe conveniently used it not to accelerate the transition, rather more like a decelerate or, or wait and see. I think that the fact that COP27 can do is to, to renew our commitment by leaders. It's not just the politicians, but then the industrial leaders, the policymakers, consumers, and the investors together. And that this is the way we need to go for 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 the next generation. And if that then we can come up with a more like a coalition new governance mechanism, we sometimes call it a global charter for the chemical industry. And if we were able to bring those people together, and then that another uh, the needed that technology that inspiration will follow. So that's my expectation at COP twenty seven. Wonderful. Definitely a call for uh, collaboration and strong leadership there. Peter, how about you? What would you say would be the one thing that would have the most impact? I would say the development agenda. So even with circularity, the system's still going to grow two and a half times. And a large amount of that growth is going to be to enable other sectors to get to net zero. So it's really key that we make that happen. But where's that growth going to happen? Well, given a lot of that growth is going to be powered by green hydrogen, the place that is going to be most affordable to produce that green hydrogen is going to be in the global south. Now, COP27 is is obviously a policymakers forum, and also it's got a focus on the global south and particularly Africa this year. So Africa has abundant renewable resources, and our model looks at where there's going to be significant potential for growth. We see in the global south huge, abundant, affordable, renewable resources. So therefore, I would think about how can policymakers come together in order to look at the how to transfer the capital, the expertise and the intellectual property out to the global south so that we can drive that development agenda and in doing so, scale the system in the right way. It's fascinating to hear you talk about the global south and its relationship with the global north. Talk to us a bit about the transition journey and what are the dynamics at play there? That is exceedingly important question for the, our just transition. And then we have to admit that the global north has not really figured out yet how that uh, finance, not only finance, but the capability, technological capacity, be actually that then transferred to the global south. And the chemical industry is, of course, one of the very important industry to find out how this entire the sector could actually the shift that then those resources, not just the financial resources, but the capacity to the global south. And this should be actually discussed much further in much more detail at COP27 and beyond. The challenge is that most of the technology is very much embedded into the private sector. And then how we can really bring the key ingredients and to make it more like a public goods and to think about transferring to the global south. That really needs to be better well thought through. And then I have no answer to it, but I just want to pose a question. Peter, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. So we can't afford to transition the global north and then transition the global south after that. We don't have the time. We need to do it together and we need to do it now. 
given that the global south has such a incredible abundance of renewable resources and that's going to be so critical to the chemical system of the future there needs to be that engagement between global north and global south so that the companies that noco just referred to can get out to those markets and engage with the environments the infrastructure the government systems out there to to build out that renewable infrastructure and then begin to manufacture net zero chemicals so i think that the collaboration on an international playing field is going to be absolutely essential to unlock the flow of capital expertise and ip i really want to see more and more the concrete action which will spark the entire industry and beyond one example will be the fast movers coalition of chemical system so that the for instance if a company uh, the several company creates the green plastic then if we were able to see who is purchasing those green plastic and create the value chain of green plastic i think that will spur the innovation going forward and provide much more assurance and confidence that then to the entire system so this is the way to go and we can win it Yeah, and absolutely no, okay, I couldn't agree more. And I think that we can't really wait for the perfect policy environment. I think that that will take several years to come through. So that's why business leaders need to lead in this instance and begin creating that nascent market so that we can move fast and begin building out that net zero system within the next year or two. And talking of the role of business and industry, I will shortly be welcoming my next guest. But before I do, a huge thank you to Nako and Peter. It's been a great discussion, broad, thoughtful, insightful, and deep in detail. So Nako, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you to Peter here in the studio. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So talking of the role of business and industry, I'm delighted to welcome Robin Moldick. He's the executive vice president of chemicals and products at Shell. Robert, it's great to have your company. How are you? Yeah, thank you, Julia. Great to be with you and uh, yeah, I look forward to this conversation. I'm really interested to know how we reduce emissions in the chemicals industry. How do you see that challenge? Petrochemicals are modern day life. Making them does require a lot of energy uh, and using them generates waste. So the chemical industry is very active and we as Shell are very active at addressing these two problems. reduce the energy intensity and the carbon intensity of our products and make them circular and sustainable. Talk to us about this challenge of reducing emissions. How do you look at that challenge? How do you break that down? Emissions in the chemical and slightly wider heavy chemicals and and products industry has two components. It's the emissions that we generate when we make the product and the emissions that are generated by using the product. The emissions that we generate by making the product means that we need to use lower carbon intensity fuel sources and hydrogen the emissions that are generated by using the products and for that we need to reduce the product carbon footprint and there are a, a few ways to do that one is we use hydrogen again another option is to use biomolecules Um, and the third bit that we're pushing hard is circularity. If we look at our customers and consumers, different sectors want different things. It's really interesting at this moment, uh, Julia, to see how the world is starting to move and shift. And um, so for cosmetics, consumers, detergents, they really want bio-based first. Anything that has to do with packaging, yeah, so that the wrapping that you do around your cucumber, for example, to give it a six times longer life, 
and reduce the waste in the food sector is around circularity. It's the same with bottles, etc. That's all circular. Um, if you look at construction or the car industry, it's about carbon footprint. They want a lower carbon footprint for the materials and, and, and use it for lightweighting in cars. I wonder if we could delve a little deeper into uh, some of the solutions that you are bringing to the market. So Holland Hydrogen One is a wind farm that we're building in the North Sea with partners. Most of this is with partners, followed by an electrolyzer that uses that green power to make green hydrogen, which we then take into our chemicals, energy and chemical park Rotterdam uh, to convert it into lower carbon intensity biological products that are then used as a lower carbon intensity feedstocks in our chemical facilities in Moerdijk to make the building blocks that we can sell into the wider industry that have a lower carbon intensity. Similarly, in, in our facility in Norco, in, in, in Louisiana, we are processing pyrolysis oil, which is recycled plastic, as well as bio-based feedstocks uh, to make a mix of, and again, the customer can choose, uh, a mix of circular and biosustainable products uh, that will end up in car tires as well as in detergents. And that's a great moment for us to head over to the Shell Chemicals Park in Mordijk in the Netherlands to learn more about the chemicals that are produced there and some options for how to cut carbon from the process. My name is uh, Alexander Monte. I work at Shell Chemicals Park Moedijk in the Netherlands, where we produce uh, base chemicals. And these chemicals are, are then processed by other companies, our customers, to make products that, that we use every day. Yeah? So like car tires, mobile phone cases, building insulation, mattresses, detergents. All these objects start their lives at a place like this. You'll see big uh, steel structures, pipes carrying everything from the feedstock that comes in to the fuel that runs the plant to, to the chemicals themselves. And one of our, the key things that we are working on, of course, is, is reducing the carbon emissions of this site, exploring ways to not only improve the energy efficiency of the site, I guess that's, that's a start, but also to start powering the plant using renewable electricity. In 2019, we opened our solar park on site, which is directly connected to the installations. We're also uh, doing a project now where we are installing new furnaces in our main plant, the Cracker, which will significantly reduce both the site's energy consumption and the operational greenhouse gas emissions, uh, reducing Shell Moedijk's annual total carbon footprint with about 10%. So now, let's return to the discussion. Where do you see resistance? So these products are more expensive to make. Uh, that is the reality at this moment in time. Uh, so customers and therefore consumers will need to pay more. And what we see in the market is that there, there is a, a nucleus, a core of customers that continue despite inflation, uh, despite the energy crisis, etc. I think we'll need to make sure that we actually scale this up. 
So this doesn't stay just the happy few uh, or limited to, to the well-off uh, high income uh, countries uh, and inhabitants. But we do need to find ways to develop the technology, see how we can get regulatory import and work with consumers to, to make sure that we can scale up uh, and make it more affordable and accessible to the whole world. Do you see the cost of these solutions coming down over time or do you think it's got a way to go yet? So the cost of these solutions will come down and they will come down with stronger acceptance by the consumers that creates scale. And economic reality is if you create scale, uh, then the costs will come down. Scale will also require technological innovation. Technological innovation is one of the key drivers to get the costs down as well. And in reality, especially to get over the initial hurdle, we will need regulations and regulatory support. And yeah, that may look different in different parts of the world, but it is essential. What would you say would be the one thing that would make the biggest difference? So the absolute biggest single positive thing that could happen if industry and regulators across the globe genuinely work together and collaborate to solve these problems proactively. This energy transition and solving the circular problem will be a longer journey. And that means that together we will need to figure out what the credible and realistic path is and have the right level of patience and inquiry to draft the right regulations, make the right investments, reach consumers and customers in the right manner so that we move forward and ideally move forward in a gradual pace, as opposed to two steps forward and one step back. Robin, I have to say it's been a fantastic conversation because we have gone from the highest level challenge right the way through thinking about some of the real solutions that you're working on at the moment in collaboration with the industry. Talked about the pace of change and the scale of change and then also what this has meant right down to the living reality of every listener listening to this podcast today. Thank you so much for all your thoughts. Yeah, thank you very much, Julia. So my thanks to Peter Galt, Naoko Ishii and Robin Moldick. You've been listening to the Energy Podcast brought to you by Shell. You can listen and follow for free wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Next time on the Energy Podcast, we'll be discussing the 2022 UN Climate Change Conference, or COP27 as it's known. The Energy Podcast is a Fresh Air production and I must remind you that the views you've heard today from individuals not affiliated with Shell are their own and not Shell PLC or its affiliates. I'm Julia Streets. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.